Congratulations. You're the first to survive the audition. minute where we're up to our armpits in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick and I'm Julia and today we're talking about minute 14 which begins with Max taking several jabs at Iron Bar and it ends with Auntie talking about all the work she's put into Bartertown and another piece of work we've got Molly Balin joining us once again from the Cabin Minute cast. Hey guys. Hey Molly. Welcome back. Yay. (laughs) Happy to be back. We ended Monday's episode with Max freeing himself from this catch-all control pole device that Iron Bar had slipped around his neck. And now that he's free, Max begins off today's episode by (laughs) grabbing the end of the catch-all pole and more or less jabbing it back into Iron Bar's face. I mentioned on Monday this idea of a Three Stooges slapstick style violence that's going on in this fight. This is definitely more of that because Iron Bar doesn't make any efforts to move the pole away from his face. He doesn't try to free the hand that is wrapped up in a bunch of cords that is grabbing onto the end of that pole. No, he just takes shot after shot (laughs) to the face. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't let go of it, which is an is an interesting move. <laughs> I would have probably just let go at that point, but I don't know if he's trying to to still control it somehow, or he feels like if he holds on to it that Max won't get a hold of the whole thing and then just like wholesale beat the crap out of him. Not quite sure. <laughs> but yeah, he just he just pretty much yeah, he just takes it to the face repeatedly. <laughs> Poor Iron Bar, he's so stunned that he's forgetting the lesson that we all learned from Elsa to just let it go. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay to let that pole drop on occasion. (laughs) (laughs) After just pummeling this poor guy in the face, Max grabs the end of the catch pole and starts more or less dragging Iron Bar around. And he drags him off towards the edge of the penthouse and just flings this poor guy (laughs) (laughs) off the edge of the penthouse. And he is just free as a bird. Uh Poor guy, my butt. He just (laughs) jumps. There is absolutely no reason for this pole to be controlling him and causing him to be pushed off the penthouse. It's just, it's so goofy, which is a word that we have from time to time used to describe things in this movie. And this is an appropriate time. (laughs) I like the parallel of the Three Stooges, because again, that's exactly what this is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that when people have critiques of this movie, it's likely because of these types of moments, because it is a little, it's a little funny. It's a little quirky. It's a little goofy. It doesn't entirely make sense in in a realistic fight sort of way. But I, I don't know that it necessarily bugs me that it's not entirely realistic. It just kind of, I think, goes to show that he's a little dim. You know, that the people around here are just a little, you know, the, I think they're also showing vitality and capacity and intelligence in in one very shining example, meaning Max and you know, iron bar in, in the, you know, the, the other end of the bell curve, so to speak. <laughs> They're definitely not used to dealing with someone like Max. They're used to the everyday wastelander who's coming in with a couple of rabbit furs to trade for a bag of grain. Mm-hmm. And then Max comes up and they are wholly unprepared for dealing with him. Yeah, very much so. Having been thrown out of the penthouse, I guess we should probably give iron bar 
his little IMDb time in the sun. (laughs) (laughs) Iron Bar Basie is played by Angry Anderson. Gary Stephen Anderson was born on August 5th, 1947 in Melbourne, Victoria. He is an Australian rock singer, songwriter, television presenter, reporter, and actor. He has been the lead vocalist of the hard rock band Rose Tattoo since 1976. Anderson's first role on camera was as a senator's aide in 1983's At Last, Bullet Mankanka, the motion picture, which is a mouthful to say the least. (laughs) Following Beyond Thunderdome, he did a TV movie in 1987 called Scuff the Sock, where he played a plasterer and then more or less stepped away from television and movies until 2002 when he came back in front of the camera appearing in movies and television over roughly 11 projects in the next 13 years. Wow. He has the distinction of being a member of the Order of Australia that was awarded on Australia Day in 1993, which is the 26th of January, for his work as a youth advocate. He is very involved when it comes to raising money for youth programs and cancer research and all of that stuff. The rock historian Ian McFarlane describes him saying that over the course of a lengthy career, the gravel-throated vocalist has gone from attention-grabbing rock and roll bad boy to all-around Australian media star. McFarlane goes on to talk about the band Rose Tattoo as one of the most revered bands of all times. The Tats, as they're affectionately called, played peerless street-level heavy blues with an emphasis on slide guitar and strident lyric statements. Apparently, and I haven't run out to check all these, but Guns N' Roses, LA Guns, Keel, Nashville Pussy, Moto Sierra, Pud Spuke, Helen Schneider, and the Uruguayan band The Night's Night have covered Rose Tattoo songs. And on August 16th, 2006, they were inducted into the Australian Recording Industry Association's Hall of Fame. Wow. Yeah. So he's had a really impressive career. (laughs) (laughs) He's a very serious musician. Yeah. Wow. Cool. And like I said, he's also done a lot of charity work, a lot of fundraising, mostly for helping underprivileged children and promoting cancer awareness and raising money for people with cancer because several original members of Rose Tattoo actually died of cancer. So it's something that's really important to him. His top four include Beyond Thunderdome. He did soundtrack work on Chopper from the year 2000 and The Time Guardian from 1987. And apparently he played someone very close to himself in a TV show that I don't know how to pronounce. It's spelled H-O-U-S-O-S. So I don't know if it's Hausos or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't always know how to say things. I don't English good all the time. (laughs) The IMDb trivia section is very clear to point out that Angry Anderson is in no way related to the actor Happy Anderson. Oh, okay. Uh, Eric Happy Anderson is most known for roles in 2017's Mindhunter, 2017's Bright, and 2014's The Nick. Okay. Two of them, not related. They're not two sides of one persona or anything like that. This (laughs) Mm -hmm. isn't a Garth Brooks, Chris Gaines situation. Does it talk about his sweet tats? Are those real? They look real. You know, I didn't actually look up any information about his tattoos, but considering that the band he is the header of is called Rose Tattoo, I am willing to believe that some of those are absolutely real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially at this time, because this... And, and then I live in a place where 
everybody's tattooed. And and I, I know that's an exaggeration in the way it sounds like, but really, I mean, there's a substantial part of the Portland population that is tattooed. And these seem completely contemporary, even though this is a movie that came out 30 years ago. And I know people were getting tattoos and that was like, ooh, you know, rock and roll, you know, bad boy kind of thing, you know, even back then. But th- these seem very contemporary. I find that very interesting that, you know, how, how well this is held up, even aesthetically. So with Iron Bar flung from the penthouse, Max turns his knife still at the ready and he sees Auntie pointing a crossbow at him. Auntie very calmly says, congratulations. You're the first to survive the audition. The fellas over at CinemaSense bring up a few good points here. They give two sins to the scene specifically, even though I don't really consider them sins. I more consider them legitimate plot questions. But they asked, how many people have been brought up to this penthouse? And Mm. how is it that they were so bad at fighting that they were taken out by two inept guards, an old (laughs) fat guy with no sense of depth, and basically a tool meant to contain small animals? (laughs) (laughs) It's an excellent question. Those were my questions, too. (laughs) I think that says something about the caliber of fighters that are in this area of the continent. (laughs) This area of the continent seems really to be for traders, people who are subsistence living and may not have time for recreational fighting. Mm -hmm. And then we have Max, who always has time for recreational fighting. Yeah, and I I think they're pointing out something that I think is somewhat inherent to these movies in that they seem to, and, and Wes kind of feels that way to me too, where you have these very, not necessarily articulate scholastic individuals or, you know, broad thinkers, because this is a time and in a space where that's not really valued, so to speak. Uh, cunning is not necessarily something in, in, in abundance. People are really just trying to subsist and they're very isolated and I, I feel like there isn't maybe the luxury to to train in a martial art necessarily. So there's a kind of like raw, you know, law of the street that's sort of taking place. And so I think even though this seems to be, at least from the initial couple of minutes that we've seen, there seems to be a lot of people coming through here. I think you're right. They're not necessarily coming in with... Uh, high capacities. I think they're really just trying to, they're just trying to get by, man. You know, and I think what we've seen of Max so far, Max has got all kinds of tricks up his sleeve. He's got, you know, in the cars that he drives, he's got all of these other little safety mechanisms because he's aware that someone's going to get the drop on him. In fact, someone did get the drop on him, which is why he's here to begin with, is that... <laughs> You know, the the pilot ended up and the little kid ended up jacking his stuff. So this seems to be something that, you know, has happened to him enough times that he creates some some extra some backups for himself. And not everybody has probably gotten that lesson, you know, or they're they're overconfident. And they don't think that they need to do that, which I also think is is part of the situation here with with Auntie. Oh, I can definitely imagine someone waltzing in from the wasteland. They've got size and they've got muscles, but they've also got a big old ego. So they think that they're amazing. So they try and throw their weight around. They get brought up to Auntie to audition for this proposition that she's got in mind. And then they summarily get brought low by probably just Iron Bar himself. I think this fight would have gone very different if Iron Bar had not been taken out at the very offset. Mm-hmm. And it had evolved into a situation where it was Max trying to fight Iron Bar with these two other guards getting involved on the side. Mm-hmm. 
because Max was able to take out three people very quickly, eliminating most of Auntie's fighting force. <laughs> like 75 percent of it <laughs> yeah this is the best of the best for her <laughs> this is her delta force <laughs> jumping backwards a little bit till last minute when the collector uses his gigantic battle axe i'm thinking that no other contender had made it that far before mm, yeah yeah because if i remember correctly looking back at my notes real quick the collector doesn't step in until iron bar and the two other guards are taken out so I think that was the first time that somebody had made it past Iron Bar and the two other guards. So the collector had to step in. Yeah, I'm willing to bet for those other instances of this audition going down, the guard that really did not have the accuracy necessary to use a wrist-mounted crossbow probably was out of practice because Iron Bar takes control of the situation so quickly anyway. Mm. Because... He's always in a position to get a drop on someone. You probably have these other dim-witted fighters that are brought up to the penthouse, think that Auntie is legitimately being nice to them, so they're picking out which piece of fruit to get when they get cold-cocked by a blow to the back of the head. Right, right. And and these are real objects of wealth for this time, so I can also see where maybe less cautious people would get the drop on them, mm -hmm. you know? I also wonder if anybody else besides the Collector is looking out for potential warriors to bring to Auntie. Mm. We think that there must be other people who fill that Collector role when the Collector's not actually doing it. Because, well, for one, he just walks away <laughs> to take Max up to Auntie. <laughs> so... They can't just close the gate. I, well, I suppose they can, but we don't think that they do. So there must be other people who have opportunities to see every person who comes through. So is there competition between who is actually going to be the one that brings her the warrior who is going to prevail? And does the collector, because he does bring her the one, does that make him more powerful? Mm. <laughs> I love that. He probably talks to all of his collector staff because I imagine there are more than just him. Like he's the manager of the collector team and he probably sits them all down and he's got his clipboard and he's like, listen, <laughs> if you see anyone that's really tough, bring him up to the penthouse. Ani wants to talk to someone like that. And then whoever brings someone up gets a bonus. So this is the manager sniping the bonus from his workers. Okay, this reminds me of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> where Veruca, yeah. her father has got a whole factory of young women opening up candy bars. And as soon as one of the young women find a golden ticket, Veruca swoops in, takes the golden ticket, and then acts like she found the golden ticket and gets all excited. Mm. That's exactly what the collector is doing. Yep. Except that he actually did find the golden ticket. Yeah. So it kind of makes, <laughs> makes it okay. I mean, he had an unfair advantage because it seems like he's manning the desk in like a peak time. Like there's got to be certain points of the day where more people are coming into Barter Town than at others. Like if you've got a collector that works the night shift like he probably doesn't get a huge line of people because everyone's like sleeping or off you know at a camp somewhere but during the thick of the day that's when the collector proper 
sits down and he gets to check in all of those people. Although there does have to be a second door that is large enough for vehicles and whatnot. Yep. Mm. So there must be another collector who is at the large door at peak hours. I think he had just as much of a chance of finding the one as the actual collector at the people door did. Mm -hmm. And really, the fact that the collector actually ended up bringing Max up to Auntie is not because of anything the collector did, because he wanted to send Max away. Mm -hmm. Like, he thought nothing of this guy. Mm Mm-hmm. And was perfectly content with sending him back into the wasteland. Yeah, and to be fair, I I feel like he did give... I mean, granted, nobody told him he was going to get, you know, interviewed in this particular manner. But I do believe the collector's been fairly upfront about expectation here. And and I think he did give him kind of a warning of, you know, he's like, look, you know, we're going to need 24 hours of your time. And and he's like, well, you know, initially Max is like, well, that's fair. And he's like, well, you know, <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't say that quite yet. You'll have to see, you know, and I'm paraphrasing. Sounds like a bargain. It's not. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> It, it, this this seems like it's okay for you, but it's actually not really going to be okay for you. But, you know, we'll bring you up and we'll see. So I, I don't feel like the collector has been um, deceptive as much, you know, and and I don't think Auntie has is, is necessarily been very deceptive either. I think they've all been very straightforward about this is what we want you to do. You know, this is what this is. Yeah. We're going to lay it down for you. They haven't been, you know, obfuscating this the situation for him. So there there is a little bit of, of integrity on their end, so to speak. A little. It's mostly <laughs> been lies of omission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they've told Max to keep his expectations in check, but they didn't tell him exactly why he should do so. And so Max is standing there after hearing Auntie say this thing about an audition and he's looking at her and he looks a little confused to me there's like a a little weird eye twitch and he still has the knife up you can tell that he's coursing with adrenaline from the fact that he was just attacked by four people and he hasn't yet really come down from that because Mm -hmm. it takes a little while for people to calm down once they've been throwing punches and tossing people out of penthouses Mm -hmm. and you can see that ramp up in his face for i think the rest of this minute and then some of the next minute yeah it's not till minute 15 where he starts to come back down to normal yeah and i think auntie can tell that he's still very much on edge because she lowers her crossbow and holds up the pitcher of water and she offers it back to him says drink it's okay as if to say it's it's fine it's not poisoned or anything like that Mm -hmm. this was an audition we weren't legitimately trying to murder you Mm -hmm. we were only sort of trying to murder you (laughs) it's only light murder (laughs) (laughs) yeah i and he you know in this moment i i was a little surprised that he's like oh okay but i i feel like everybody kind of stands down in this moment and she has a very i don't know warm kind affect that 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 disarms him enough that he's like okay and and then after he accepts the water and um we see iron bar kind of (laughs) climb back in shocking Um, everyone (laughs) right right with his upper arm strength which i is not evident upon cursory glance but you know hey god bless and you know she kind of when they go to look out the window, she kind of touches his arm. So there's this connection that she's she's making with him. She's a very warm character in this moment of like, here, it's okay. 
I'm offering you water. I'm going to touch you like we're, we're okay here. You know, I'm going to now explain to you what this is and a little bit more about, you know, what you've walked into. When they asked for Tina Turner, this is what they paid for mm. this type of interaction here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, one thing that stood out to me as auntie is lifting up that picture is the ring that she has on her index finger because a it's huge. Oh, yeah. And B, it reminded me of a symbol, specifically an Egyptian symbol. Mm -hmm. So I went on uh, (laughs) ancient.eu because they had a nice little article about Egyptian symbols. And the one that I had in mind is called an ankh, Mm -hmm. A-N-K-H, an ankh. It is a cross (laughs) with a looped top, which besides the concept of life also symbolizes eternal life, the morning sun the male and female principles, the heavens, and the earth. Mm -hmm. Its form embodies these concepts in its key-like shape. In carrying the Ankh, one was holding the key to the secrets of existence, the union of opposites, male and female, earth and heaven, and the extension of earthly life to eternal, time to eternity, were all represented in the form of the looped cross. The symbol was so potent and so long-lived in Egyptian culture, dating from the early dynastic period in Egypt, circa 3150 to 2163 BCE, that it is really no surprise that it was appropriated by the Christian faith in the 4th century CE as a symbol for their god. Mm. That was all from the ancient.eu. You can check them out for their Egyptian symbols page. But I like the idea that one of Auntie's big symbols is that idea of life and opposites. Mm-hmm. And eternal life. Mm-hmm. Ruling in perpetuity. Yeah, because as we're going to find out as she talks about the concept of Barter Town at the end of this minute going into Friday's minute, like this is her pride and this is her joy, this place that she's built up. And as we see Iron Bar climbing up from the side of the penthouse. I wonder if he knows that penthouse well enough that there are handholds that he's able to reach out and grab onto. But (laughs) as Auntie leads Max over to the edge of her penthouse, she directs his focus to the world that they have around them. We get interrupted with a quick little shot of the collector who is recovering from his grievous injury and he's (laughs) staring at Auntie and Max. And when we were talking to Tom the other week, he said that in Pete's notes, because Pete wasn't able to join us that time, that the collector reminded Pete of Unkar Plutt from The Force Awakens. And in this shot specifically, I don't know if you've seen FX's Legion, Mm-mm. but he kind of reminds me of the Shadow King as well. Hmm. I gotta check that out. I haven't seen that show. Definitely do. Okay. <laughs> it is a trip. Ooh, cool. And it's a great opportunity to see Matthew Crawley from Downton Abbey mm. just play a very different role. Nice. <laughs> nice. Wow. Yeah, that's that's all you needed to say. I'm I'm highly intrigued. <laughs> Yeah, I I love that her, she's got this little speech here with him, you know, all this I built up to my armpits and blood and, you know, and it it just tells me that civilizing people is a dirty business, Mm -hmm. you know? And she goes into this idea of all of the opposites that she's been able to shift from one state of being to the other, where there was a desert, now there's a town, where there's robbery, there's trade, where there was despair, now there's hope. And she sums that all up by saying, it's civilization. Mm -hmm. This idea of Auntie's accomplishments, that she has created a civilization here in this desert, made me wonder... made me think about the compound dwellers from Road Warrior and how they were looking for the same thing. They wanted civilization, but all they ever found in the desert was robbery and despair. 
And that's what drove them. That was their motivation to leave. So I wonder how Road Warrior would have been different if Auntie was leading the group instead of Papagallo. Mm, yeah. Auntie strikes me as a deal maker. Mm-hmm. Because that's what she's doing here with Max. And she's built up this whole idea of barter town around this idea of trade and equitable trade at that. So I imagine, and I really should not delve back into the what could have been different game because I played that a lot during season two. <laughs> but all of those times we were talking about Humongous and Papagala working together, I kind of feel like Auntie could have made that happen. Hmm. Yeah, I think Auntie is is very interested in in remaking a civilization. Um, but I think, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit more on Friday. But I feel like what part of this discussion is with her and and Max is is Max is you know a, of a similar age enough to her to understand what was left behind, and so she's trying to to show him, look, we're we're rebuilding civilization. I'm somebody who is a trustworthy leader. I'm capable. Look what I built here. You know, we had all of this pain coming out of the last, you know, regime, so to speak. I'm bringing all this goodness to the land. You know, there's almost this uh, messianic message from her. Look what look what I've created. You can be a part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've developed a rule of law, which again we'll we'll go into a little bit more on Friday, which uh, is, is <laughs> they're trying to pervert a little bit, but. Uh, she is somebody who's trying to lay down boundaries within a place that has no boundaries, which should, uh, on you know, cursory view, be very attractive to Max because he was somebody who was, you know, upholding the law in his last life. And so he's really been a fish out of water in, in a place that has no no law, so to speak. You know, his, his values have been, you know, the only thing that he's had to really kind of cling to with all of this. What I like about this little speech that Auntie is giving Max, it's that you can tell already, and Auntie is going to get into it on Friday's Minute, but you can already tell at the onset that she cares very deeply about the time and effort that she has put into this project known as Barter Town. Mm-hmm. She strikes me as like an artist, talking about artwork or Mm. a craftsman talking about their creation. Mm -hmm. There's a show on Netflix that we like to watch from time to time, and it's really short-lived, so it's not like we can watch a ton of it, but it's a show all about the most amazing houses in the world. And Hmm. these hosts, they sit down with these architects and to hear the architects talk about all of the effort and the time and the vision that went into some of these creations. I feel like it's not exactly the same, but it's more or less the same. Hmm. The fact that even though auntie is up to her armpits in blood and (laughs) that she has created something magnificent Mm -hmm. where there was nothing before. Right. And I think we might have said this before. I don't know if we've said it before, but there's this idea of scavengers versus creators in the wasteland. And we saw a lot of scavengers in the second movie. Mm -hmm. And as we move on to the compound dwellers and to Barter Town and later on to Fury Road, the people that are really making steps forward in this world are the people that are creating new things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's definitely a big theme of that. And and how do you recreate? Mm-hmm. Because you have such a, you know, we, we had this monumental civilization, right? And now we don't. So what did we learn from all that? Mm. How are we going to create as a result of that? I think that's a that's a big theme in, in this week's episodes. 
especially the idea of are we really learning from what was built before or are we just recreating mm-hmm. what was there before? Right. Do we even know how to go beyond that? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, though. I mean, I, and again, I think later on down the road in, in this movie, I think that gets that gets dealt with as a, a third element to be discussed. But in this moment, yeah, I, I don't know that they know how to rebuild Honestly, they have and it must be very weird for them because they have all of these tools and technologies and, you know, they're they're still inhabiting what was what are all these leftover resources, you know, and do we even have the capacity to upkeep because we had infrastructures before and we don't have them anymore. So it's this, I think, is is just showing, you know, the attractiveness of what was before, you know, and in in auntie trying to show how she has, has rebuilt something. You know, mm. she's a she's a fine cultured lady rebuilding civilization. I've seen in certain places the idea that Max represents a man who is clinging to the past because he's in pain and Auntie is a woman clinging to the past because she's almost doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Like she's recreating her civilization in the image of the civilization that came before. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Although she does have one major difference between the civilization that was before. I mean, Dr. Dealgood is going to get into it when he gets into his grand speech once we actually get into Thunderdome. But that's a whole other thing to happen in a completely different week. <laughs> As for us, we've pretty much run our course on minute 14 here. So we are going to put a pin in this. We're going to pick up with Auntie Entity continuing to talk about Bartertown on Friday. So come back and join us for that because it's going to be good. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 14 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Over!